The first reading is from St Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verses 45 to 50. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma samachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. So this first uh, part of the reading, uh, I've called God forsaken. This is the moment Jesus uh, has had in his sights throughout his life, throughout his ministry. He spoke several times that he had to die. And here we are on the day it happened. This is where his life has been heading to this moment. Jesus nailed to the cross hanging there in agony. Passers-by hurling insults at him, religious leaders mocking him, even those crucified with him insulting him, alone. And the first thing we read of in that reading is of the darkness, the three hours of darkness that came over the whole land. An unnatural darkness. This is the middle of the day. It shouldn't be dark. But something unusual is happening here. God has darkened the sky. And in that darkness, Jesus on the cross. What other religion has anything like this? That its founder's greatest moment is when he is writhing in agony as he dies. Tom Holland, the historian, emphasises how, how horrible this was, how horrific it was, how unusual it was, um, in a way. He says this in uh, his book, Dominion. To be hung naked, helpless to beat away the clamorous birds, long in agony, as the philosopher Seneca put it, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulder and chest was the very worst of fates. So why is this terrible death that Jesus went through so significant? Well, hear his cry. Verse 46. He cries out. Now, the word cries there is 
a strong, powerful, emotional word. This is a gut-wrenching cry of someone in intense, overwhelming pain. He is screaming out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is experiencing God-forsakenness. That's what's going on at the cross, the judgment of God. That's why there's the darkness, because God is judging Jesus. And we know why he is going through such agony. As, uh, here is Jesus bearing the awesome weight of sin. Or as it says in 1 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what is happening, isn't it? Our sin being placed on Jesus. He's taking what our sins deserve. And therefore, the cross can recalibrate our understanding of the seriousness of sin. If our sin is placed on Jesus and this is what he is bearing, that shows us how serious our sin is. When you're weighing something, we've got plenty of scientists among us, if you're weighing something, or if you're in the kitchen and you're weighing something, or even when you're weighing your baggage, you want to go on holiday, you need to weigh it, you must make sure that your scales are at zero, mustn't you? You've got to press the tear button. If you don't, it can all go horribly wrong, can't it? We need something similar to happen to us when it comes to seeing how bad sin is. Our problem is that because we're surrounded by sin all around us and it pervades our hearts, we don't see it as being as bad as it really is. We need something to recalibrate it, to show us how bad our sin, our wrongdoing is. And the cross does that. It resets our scales, shows us what our sin actually deserves. If your and my sin is placed on Jesus and he bears this agony, this anger from God, then that must mean that is what I deserve. And we need to pray that we and those around us, those who aren't Christians as well, have our senses reset, that we would know how bad we really are. Because if you're a Christian, this is how your love for Jesus, one way your love for Jesus will grow. Do you remember Jesus said of a sinful woman who came to him and, and, and wept and wet his feet with her tears and poured out perfume on Jesus' feet? And it was an extravagant act. And those in the room thought she was being, this was, this was far too much. They looked down on her, they were disgusted at her. And yet Jesus said, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. When we fully see how bad our sin is, we see how great Jesus' love is to forgive us, and we then respond with greater love. So we need to know the depths of our sin, how bad it is. And then we also have a recalibration for how great God's love is that he could forgive us through the cross. 
And we need to pray for those who aren't Christians, that they would have the realization of the dreadful seriousness of their sin as well, that they might come to Jesus, that he would take their sin and they receive his righteousness. God forsaken. Therefore, we're going to, in the next part, confess our sins to God. It is right that we bring them to him, knowing this is what Jesus took. The words of the confession will come up on the screen. So we say together. Almighty God, long-suffering and of great goodness, I confess to you my neglect and forgetfulness of your commandments, my wrongdoing, thinking and speaking, the hurts I have done to others and the good I have left undone. O oh God, forgive me, for I have sinned against you and raise me to newness of life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Can just stand and sing our next song. Jesus paid it all.
second Bible reading is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, beginning at verse 50, and that can be found on page 999. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Colin. So this part I've called death and life. First part was God forsaken. Second part, death and life. There are three things, at least, in that passage that Colin just read, which burst open. Three things. And Matthew lists them in a kind of one after the other, just sort of uh, rapid fire. And for this, you have to sort of zoom across the city. If this were a film were made of this, the camera would sort of shoot across from one place to another to another. As when Jesus dies, three things burst open. And the first, the camera zooms to, or goes over to, the temple. Jesus dies on the cross. Go over to the temple. You've heard this before. You might have done if you've been at Emmanuel before. Uh, at Easter, we often refer to this bit. That wonderfully, at this moment, the curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And this is a wonderful moment, isn't it? It shows what's happening when Jesus dies on the cross has been successful. It has achieved what it needed to achieve. Do you remember, if you were here, on the Sunday when we did the outline of the tabernacle? And at the front... We had the curtains, uh, the curtains which were in front of the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. There's a curtain there, and we said that only one person was allowed to go through that curtain, and then only once a year, and then it must be with blood, with the blood of a sacrifice. As the only person who could go through, those are the only conditions they could go in to the most holy place. The most holy place representing God's presence. So that was a clear signal to the people to say, basically, you can't come in, but the one person who can, can come in if there has been the sacrifice for his sin and for the sin of the people. Then, and only then, can they come in. And that, when the temple was built, that curtain was also put there. That was the curtain in front of the Holy of Holies. And as Jesus dies, the camera goes across to the temple, to that curtain, and the curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. In other words, this isn't people doing this. This is God ripping open the curtain. It is bursting open to say, you can now come in because the sacrifice has been made for sin. So no more sacrifices are needed. It means the temple is redundant. You don't need the temple anymore. Because the sacrifice, the animal sacrifices, no longer need to be made. You can come in to God's presence. Jesus' death had achieved 
the, the sacrifice for sin and therefore our forgiveness. So the curtain bursts open, meaning you can come in, come into God's presence through Jesus, only through Jesus. And then you zoom across in your mind's eye to the tombs. And this is a bit which Matthew records others don't. This is the bit where you might have been thinking, what, really? Over to the tombs. Uh, Verse 51, after it says that the curtains are torn in two, the curtain is torn in two, it then says the earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. The timing of that is a little bit unclear, exactly what Matthew means. Does he mean the the tombs burst open as Jesus died? When were the people actually resurrected? You know, coming back to life? Was that at that moment? In which case, what were they doing while they waited for Jesus' resurrection? Just hanging around the tombs, these people who... What's going on there? Or, uh, you know, exactly what the order is, is not entirely clear. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Matthew puts this... uh, Even if the timing is slightly different, he puts it here, right next to Jesus' death. Uh, Now, there's no reason to think this didn't happen. I mean, if you're not a Christian and you're exploring Christianity and you're going... I want to explore the evidence for Christianity. This is probably not the place to start the resurrection of these people after Jesus has just died. No, go for the resurrection of Jesus. There's plenty of evidence for that. That's the thing to go for first. But there's no reason to think this didn't happen. Matthew records it, that these people rose to life uh, and were seen in the holy city in Jerusalem. So I take it they were. And what's the big point? Matthew is saying here, as Jesus dies on the cross, you've got death and you've got life. It's like the tombs can't, can't hold back the dead anymore and they are risen to life because Jesus dies. You've got this wonderful juxtaposition, death and life. And it's like, it just can't help it. And it's like a little foretaste of the resurrection that we look forward to when God's people who've trusted in Jesus and are therefore righteous will be raised again and we will be with them. It'll be a wonderful thing. So the tombs burst open. So we've had the curtain bursting, saying you can come into God's presence. The tombs burst as well, saying death has been defeated. We can rejoice in that. What's the third thing that bursts? Okay, a little bit of liberty on this one. But you go back to the scene of the cross, and the third thing that bursts is the heart of the centurion. Verse 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. That's the third thing that bursts, the centurion's heart. How much has he really grasped? We don't know. But he has grasped something, hasn't he? Maybe it's because he'd heard the people shouting at Jesus. Verse 43, if you just cast your eyes back, you've got to go back a page. People were shouting at Jesus. Um, He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. So maybe he's heard that taunt. And then in seeing what he does, experiencing the earthquake, seeing the darkness, hearing the cry, seeing Jesus die, 
his heart bursts. He goes, he was the son of God. And that is the realisation we need to have too. That this man, who died so others may have life, who died taking our sin, is the Son of God. And we need to bow before him, whose death opens the temple, opens the grave. This man who has died and yet is the Son of God. And when this guy realises, when we realise this, when we commit our lives to Jesus and say, bow before him in worship, recognise him as our Lord and Saviour, that is when we come to life. That's what the Bible says. Those who become Christians come to life. Ephesians 2 says we're all dead in our transgressions and sins, but when someone puts their trust in Jesus, they're brought to life. They're born again it says in John chapter 3. At the moment of Jesus' death, three things burst. The curtain, the tombs, the centurion's heart. Do you know and rejoice in this Saviour, the Son of God? Well, if you do, or if you want to respond to Jesus as the centurion did, maybe the centurion did, maybe for the first time, Today, you want to respond that Jesus is the Son of God. Joan's going to come and uh, read for us, sing for us, sorry, a song. Uh, And uh, as you hear it, make these words your own prayer. So we're just going to sit and listen as uh, Joan sings.
Let us pray for the world, the church, those who are unwell, and ourselves. But first, let's give thanks. Father, on this Good Friday, we praise you for your mercy in sending your only Son to die for us so that we can know you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being willing to undergo such suffering, not only in body, but also in spirit, as you were separated from the Father. Thank you that you could cry out before you died, it is finished. Help us to understand more and more clearly what is encompassed in those words. Amen. Have mercy, O God, on our distracted and suffering world, on the nations perplexed and divided. Especially today, we pray for Russia and Ukraine, countries suffering the results of earthquakes, tornadoes, famine, for Myanmar and those suffering from violence and injustice, and for Haiti, and all the gang fighting there. And today is the International Day of Reflection for the 1994 Rwanda genocide. So we give you thanks, Father, that you have enabled perpetrators to seek forgiveness. You've enabled survivors to be able to extend forgiveness. And we pray for all Rwandans as they seek to live together in harmony. Give to them, to us, and to all people a new spirit of repentance and amendment. Direct the councils of all who are working for the removal of causes for strife and for the promotion of goodwill, and hasten the coming of your kingdom of peace and love and justice. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
And Lord, we beseech you to maintain your church in truth and patience, that her pastors and leaders may be faithful and vigilant, her flock united under you, her warfare spiritual, her weapons heavenly, her lamp burning and shining. And as your son Jesus Christ has given so great a price for us, let us not count it a hard thing to give up all for him and to spend and be spent for the souls he has redeemed, for he lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit now and forevermore. Amen. Lord of great compassion, we pray for those who are physically or mentally ill and are too weak and anxious, perhaps, to lift themselves above the fear and sadness that threaten to overwhelm them. Lord, lift them up and deliver them as you delivered your disciples in the storm at sea, strengthening their faith and banishing their fear. May they turn to you, O Lord, and find you. And in finding you, may they also find all that you have laid up for them within the fortress of your love. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, take us to yourself. Draw us with cords to the foot of your cross, for we have no strength to come and we so often lose the way. You are mighty to save, and no one can separate us from your love. Bring us home to yourself, for we have gone astray. We have wandered. Please seek us. Let us live the rest of our lives under the shadow of your cross, for there we shall be safe. Amen. And finally, we commit ourselves and those whom we love into the hands of our loving Father as we say the Lord's Prayer together. The words are on the screen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today your daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Matthew 27, verse 55. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, 
there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. So this part I've called Dead and Buried. The next couple of sections, this section and the next section, um, tee us up for the resurrection of Jesus. And various objections that you might have are taken away, or various details are in there that help us when it comes to the evidence for, for the resurrection. The emphasis in these verses is that he was dead and was buried. And both of those are significant. He really was dead. The women uh, who are mentioned there, listed for us, they witnessed his death. That's in verse 55. The women witnessed his death. And we know from the other Gospels that, they really, that uh, the officials really did make sure that Jesus was dead. In one of the other accounts, in Mark's Gospel, Pilate uh, questions whether Jesus really was dead. The centurion confirms that he was dead. In John's Gospel, the soldiers shove a spear in Jesus' side to make sure that he was dead. Jesus was dead. Wrapped in linen cloth, he hadn't swooned, as Muslims claim that he had, there is no evidence of that. And I was thinking about this earlier this week, of course. The method of killing Jesus um, would mean that it would be very hard to mistake him for actually being dead. Um, after all, uh, as we are told, when someone is crucified, in order for them to be able to breathe, they have to push up on the nail that goes through their feet. That is the only way that they can breathe when they're just hanging limply. They cannot breathe. So it is agony for them as they, as they push on that nail in order to be able to take a breath. Well, clearly, if someone is not pushing up, they are not able to breathe, and therefore they're dead. And Jesus, they knew, was dead. I think it would have been clear if he'd still been alive. No, he is dead. Wrapped up, placed in the tomb, and the stone rolled over the front of it, buried. And two, notice, two of the same women see where he was laid. Verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. And uh, we've noticed this before in the crucifixion accounts and resurrection accounts. It's significant, isn't it, that the writers list the names of the people who witnessed these things. And it's significant. It's the same women who saw Jesus die saw his body put in the tomb. Why is the writer saying this? 
so that those around at the time that this was written could then go and check with those eyewitnesses. Matthew is writing a historical account. He wants to give the evidence for what happened. And it's helpful that they are women who saw all this. Helpful for us, because back then, uh, the testimony of women was, was not acceptable in court. They were not regarded as reliable witnesses. Why is that helpful? Well, it shows that Matthew is not making this up. If he was making it up, he wouldn't have the women as the witnesses. He would have had men doing it. It shows it really happened. And Joseph asks for the body, which is a brave thing to do, to associate with yourself with someone who's been executed. And it's unusual that it was agreed that his body would be taken down and buried. Executed criminals were normally not put in tombs. Their bodies would normally be thrown in a communal grave. But again, this is important for us, isn't it? Because one of the important bits of evidence for the resurrection is the empty tomb. But of course, if Jesus' body had been taken down and just thrown into a communal grave, well, that would cause problems there, wouldn't it? Someone then comes along and says, well, the body isn't there. Well, maybe you mistook the body. Maybe it's one of the other ones. Maybe, uh, maybe a wild animal took it away. Maybe some people took it away. There could be all kinds of problems with that, couldn't there? The fact that Jesus' body was put in a tomb is very helpful. And the fact it was a new tomb, that means there were no other bodies in there. Just the one body, Jesus' body. And the women saw where his body was put. This is going to be significant on Sunday, isn't it? Because Mary's going to go back to the same tomb and he's going to see that that one body is not there. Oh, of course, the biggest bit of evidence for the resurrection is going to be the appearances to, uh, uh, to Jesus' followers and to others, to the many who saw Jesus' resurrected body resurrected to life again. But these are all significant steps as well, aren't they? <coughs> significant rungs in the ladder of evidence that lead you to faith in Jesus, the resurrected King. Well, the stone is rolled in front of the tomb. Probably had to be rolled down a slope to locate it in place. Jesus was dead and buried. We're going to stand and sing our next song. Oh, praise the name. Please stand. Body bound and drenched in. 
Please be seated. And the fourth reading is from Matthew chapter 27 and beginning to read at verse 62, which is on page 1000. The next day, one of the, the, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, this deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Our last section. Uh, I've called nobody gets nobody is getting in. Nobody is getting in. You've got more evidence actually being stacked up for the resurrection, haven't you here? Uh, though the actions of the chief priests and Pharisees are designed to squash any possibility of a story of Jesus rising from the dead. By doing what they do, they give us greater evidence that Jesus has risen from the dead. They go to Pilate, verse 63, and say, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. What's striking, it's a bit striking, isn't it, that they seem to have remembered this better than the disciples have done. Now, of course, they don't believe that Jesus is going to rise from the dead. Maybe they were told by Judas that this is what Jesus had claimed. Anyway, they ask for the tomb to be secured so that the disciples can't steal the body. So a guard is taken, verse 65, take a guard, Pilate says, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. There's a challenge for them. How, how secure can you make that tomb? You make it that secure. Go do it. A secured tomb. They secured it with a seal and a guard. And it's important to know this because uh, of what follows after the resurrection, that the guard, we are told in uh, chapter 28, the guard were paid a large sum of money to say that the disciples stole the body while they were asleep. And so it says the rumour was that Jesus' body was stolen. Now, if there was, when you talk to people about the resurrection, you say, look, what other explanations could there be for Jesus' resurrection? The one that people will come up with is probably, well, the disciples stole the body. But it's interesting, Matthew has given you here plenty of evidence to say, well, plenty of things to support the idea of going, actually, no, that is not what could have happened. I mean, we know this from other Gospels as well, don't we? How do you deal with the idea? If someone says to you, oh, maybe the disciples stole the body, how do you deal with that? Well, there are several things you can say, can't you? One is, clearly, in the, in the Gospel accounts, these disciples are not in a state to do anything like this. They are not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. They themselves have run away when uh, Jesus was arrested, 
It's not like they were on board for, you know, uh, for sticking with Jesus. No, they ran away. They are frightened. Uh, and in the accounts after Jesus has died, you see that they are in a locked room for fear of the Jews. They are, they are frightened. They're not about to uh, get a gang together, defeat the Roman guard, break the seal of the tomb, steal the body, hide it so that no one can find it, and then claim Jesus has risen from the dead. They're not about to do that. And don't forget the resurrection appearances that Jesus appeared to over 500 people. Well, you can't do that with a, you know, if you've stolen the body. But also that the disciples themselves of Jesus' apostles, of, uh, of uh, the, uh, the 11, uh, all but one are martyred for their belief in the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. And the one who wasn't was John, who was um, exiled for his trust in the resurrection. So they all stuck with their testimony that Jesus really had risen from the dead. No, the disciples did not steal the body. To the end of chapter 27, Jesus is dead and buried. The tomb is sealed. The guard is posted. And that is where we leave it, in anticipation of Sunday. God's Son has come to earth, had brought light to a dark world, and humanity had done its worst, torturing him, nailing him to a cross, then sealing the tomb and putting a guard on it. It's almost like humanity is saying to God, take that God. This is what we do to your son. We end the chapter with Jesus dead and buried, sealed and guarded. And yet, this is all part of God's plan to save mankind. And it is very personal, isn't it? Jesus did this for me, for you, died and in that grave. And it demands a personal response, which is what we're about to sing in our last song. When we sing, Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? Let's stand to sing that.